welcome to the to the second edition of, of the Ask Me Anything. And just to introduce myself as well before Phil joins, because I can I can save some time because uh, Phil knows me quite well. I've I um I'm an alumni of Consalia's uh, level six degree apprenticeship program, uh, and then I've joined I joined in November, so I've been here three or four months, really enjoying it. Um, and as I mentioned, with my role being similar to Jane's, um, I'm a, I'm our business development manager for for apprenticeships. So it's a, it's an interesting session to be involved in uh, to talk to Phil about, you know, some of the things we've got on the on the agenda today. One being the sort of the value of relationships uh, and relationship capital. Um, we've also got a couple of questions from a. Uh, one of our very new students who's joined the joined our apprenticeship essentially straight out of school he's done a couple of apprenticeships before um, but it's his first full-on sales job so he's got questions for Phil around advice for, for for people coming into the sales profession which I hope is useful to to anyone at any stage of their career Phil good to have you here yeah, great to be here. Thank you, Luke. And sounds like you did a great job holding forth. Yeah, sorry to put you under that pressure. <laughs> That's all right. It's good fun. Yeah. Um, I, I mean, Jane's a, a, a what should we say, a repeat customer. Jane's back from last time, which is good. Great. Um, says we maybe did it right. I don't know if Ian was on the last one, um, but we've got Ian Jones uh, on the call yeah, with us Ian, as well. Ian and, definitely was. And Ian's, Ian was, yeah, and he submitted a question again to, today yeah, for you. Yeah, thank you. Um, but for those joining who haven't been on before, just a, a, an open forum, really, a chance for, for you uh, to ask questions to Phil um, about the sales profession, what's going on today. And, um, you know, we try and give a, a lot of insight at Consalia, but... This, this, this allows us to be a bit more specific to you. Um, so I hope you're ready, Phil. I am slightly worried about the questions as I was indeed last last time as well, so. <laughs> I, 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 I won't freewheel as much as Will did. As Will did, thank you. Thank you for that. <laughs> the, 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 first com the first question comes from Garth Sutherland at Garth Sue. Oh, yeah. and, and and Garth is asking us about relationship capital. So, for those you know unfamiliar with the top topic of relationship capital, it's simply the, the I suppose the value of your relationships, isn't it, Phil? Yes, he was alluding to um, the idea of putting um, the value of particularly key accounts. How, how could you put a a value of those key accounts, but perhaps on the balance sheet mm. of of an organisation. And I think his his question was 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 um, around how, how how do you do that? Um, but I'm not the listeners understand quite why he asked the question, which is which is quite you know perhaps like you were saying, it's best to go back before we go forward with with. The answer on that. So, do you want me to continue on, Luke, with 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 the question he was posing, or do you? Yeah, well, let, let, let me pose this question as he asked it, just okay. for context to uh, yeah the listeners. So, so Garth said, "I fully understand 
the reason for attempting to bring the value of relationships onto the balance sheet. Yeah. I am a marketing person and fully understand bringing the value of intangibles onto the company's worth. The brand value always plays a specific role. Speaking to accountants on the topic, they do understand and are comfortable with intangible assets. In conversations with those same accountants, they ask, how do you value those relationships? So they understand the concept, but accountants always want a, a numerical figure. I've read many of your articles available on relationship capitalization, including the academic papers and dissertations, but I cannot find any simple set of points that explains the how. There is a lot of reasoning and justification, all of which makes sense, but the how escapes me. Can you assist in finding me an answer to that? Mm. Um, it's not going to be an easy one to answer very, very simply because um, uh, the, the only time at which you are legally required to put a value on your customer base is, is essentially at the point that a company is being sold. Up to that point, there's no reason for accountants to put a value, but it's done at the point of sale um, because part of the value that you build into a business is based on the goodwill that you have with your customer base. Um, so I think the reason why accountants aren't familiar with it is because it's not something that happens every day. It's, it's not part of what they do. And there are specialists involved out there whose job it is to put a value on intangible assets. Um, and when I've spent time talking to them about this specific point, um, about, about um, how do you put a value, um, they, they are a little vague in, in how they you know, in how they say they, 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 they compute um, the, the value of customers. They look at data, they look at sales data, uh, they look at trend data, um, they look at who are the key accounts, um, uh, they look at um, benchmarking uh, the value of similar companies perhaps that have been sold and previous valuations done around uh, uh, around the value of, of clients. Um, and they pool all of, all of this data into what they call net present value calculations. It's where you take the value of an account, let's take a single account, um, you look at its expected earnings over a period of time, and then you discount the value um, according to the amount of risk associated with whether that account is going to be there in five, 10 years time. Um, and uh, the risk value is, is, is rather arbitrary. Now, how do you put um, a risk value against an account? So if you've got an account that you've had for 50 years, now you could argue that it's highly likely that that account will continue to be a uh, a, a client moving moving forward. Um, what what also happens is so so risk the the risk element is a component of the net present value 
um, calculation, the discount rate that's applied to future earnings. Um, so um, I, I don't know how, in how much more detail I need to go mm. to, um, but this is the reason this is the reason why specialists get involved. Um, there are uh, legal, um, there are, you know, legal frameworks or accounting frameworks, IFRS standards that are set to enable accountants to follow a, a, a sort of a set of principles. Um, but it's, it, it, it's so highly specialized, you, you need a intangible asset expert you know, to do the valuation. So I'm not surprised that that Gareth has actually said that it's it's you know the accountants don't know the answer mm. um, because it is such a, a specialised area. Um, what we've what we've done here at Consalia to address this particular topic because I'm I'm interested in putting a value against our key accounts, irrespective of whether the company sold or not. Um, and the rationale that we're using to come up with our calculation of value is where we take the account, we take what is contracted sales value over the next two to three years. Mm. And then we multiply that by a discount rate, um, which takes into account inflation and it takes into account the risk that we would uh, be associated with the, that, that account, which has to do with our level of relationships, the quantity of relationships with ha with, that, that we have with the account and so on. Um, so we've formulated our own formula for doing it, um, but it is, it, it's not something that we can give to the accountants to then say, this is the value of our account based on the balance sheet. Yeah. I'm, I'm doing it just from our perspective because some of the KPIs you can set, set for your key accounts can be influenced by the um, metrics that you build into the calculation. Mm. Luke, have I confused you or are you okay with what I've shared? Well, I've read a lot of your, um, your, your, your work that you've done with, with IntraHive. Yes. So, so I'm lucky in that sense. I think to, 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 to perhaps bring it back to the, the, the salesperson level, because you talk yes. at the strategic level, for me, relationship capital is fundamental for, 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 for the value I bring to the organization I sell for. Yeah. Because when you join a, a company, so I'm new to Consalia um, and I'm looking to de develop new relationships with clients, therefore increase the relationship capital I have with organizations you don't already have. But if I'm to do a good job as a salesperson, I need to develop the relationship they have with the brand, Consalia, yeah. not just with me. Yeah. Because if I go out as a salesperson, uh, and it's, it's great that people buy from people, but you don't really bring value to your organization mm. if, if, if you're not selling the brand to the customer. Yeah, well, that's, that's, that's absolutely right. But there's a difference between relationship capital in the way that you used it and relationship capitalization. Hmm. Relationship capitalization is the process of putting the value on the balance sheet, but relationship capital, one can talk about sort of in a general sense. And I think the pandemic, I think Ian has asked another question about loyalty and, uh, and, the, and the, the sort of pandemic and what it's done to, you know, with loyalty. 
is that the question that one could ask, similar to what you've done, is, you know, has, for example, the pandemic increased or decreased the relationship capital you have with your key accounts? And a lot of that has to do with um, how well you've looked after those accounts through what has probably been quite a stressful and difficult time. Yeah. Um, so, so, yeah, it's, it's a really big question, I think. Um, Good question. Uh, when I think of pandemic and loyalty, the, the, the phrase I always think of is the companies that blame COVID. There came a time where, sorry, we, sorry, because of COVID, that expired. People yeah. couldn't use that. And, and people that didn't, weren't loyal to their customer base would milk COVID much longer than they needed to. Right. But um, the, the, the question from Ian, so Ian said, coming out of the pandemic years, what should we have learned about what makes customers loyal and, and stay loyal even through times of crisis? Well, I don't know if Ian is, is on the call, um, but if he is on the call, I'd, I'd be really interested to know what Ian's points of view, <laughs> point of view is on that. I don't know, Ian, if you've got a chance to share your ideas, because I know you are very experienced in this area. Yeah, Phil, um, I, I, I was thinking about the experiences that some of my clients are talking to me about in, in my coaching relationship with them uh, here in South Africa. And, and it appears that they are seeing that their clients are at some point on a continuum that starts with continuing a survival strategy or going through a period of recovery or in a process of thriving and going from strength to strength. But, but whatever point on the continuum continuum they find their clients or customers in, uh, they are discovering that the thing that their clients are interested in more than anything else by far is what the supplier can do to contribute specifically to the customer's success in the situation that the customer finds themselves in. Mm. And, and that seems to be uh, a little bit confusing and concerning uh, for many sales leaders and sales people in that they're coming from a tradition of being primarily concerned with meeting targets, with displaying in an attractive manner the benefits, the solutions, the features of the products and services that they offer. And this idea of needing to specifically connect with customer concerns around what is going to contribute to the customer's success uh, is something that's quite foreign to them. Uh, and, and being by nature uh, pretty confident people, uh, they're loath to share the confusion and concern, certainly with strangers. And they're really kind of thrashing around to find what is the new basis for relationship uh, that they need to establish uh, with, with, with their clients? And my reason for asking the question was to see, Phil, what you had uh, through your experience and through your relationships with clients that might be helpful uh, in steering salespeople and sales leaders in the right direction. 
Well, such a such a um, well put uh, sort of reflection of your experiences in 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 uh, South Africa. Um, I I I could answer. I think I could answer this at a number of different levels, and um, one is at a at a compassion kind of level, in the sense that you know to what extent have has your experience in South Africa um, suggested that no matter what state your customer's in, whether it's success or struggling or surviving, as you mentioned sort of earlier, is has there been a, a, a more personal connection expected in the way salespeople are kind of relating to customers, a more human, if you like, approach um, versus the target orientation that you, you, you've kind of mentioned earlier on. Um, I don't know if you've got any thoughts on that. I, I do have a thought on it, which, which is my personal theory, but I, I'd, be, I'd be interested to know what you felt. Phil, it seems as though the traditional approach by many uh, sales leaders and sales professionals across an, a number of industries here yeah. is this preoccupation with target and the preoccupation of their internal priorities yeah. and need to switch to discovery and becoming curious about what it is that yeah. customers are currently focused on. It's that switch that seems to be a difficult uh, metamorphosis to undertake. Yeah. I think what you've mentioned there is, is something we see across so many of, of our different, uh, different clients. Um, uh, but we've also seen clients, you know, for, for example, if you take the, you know, Ukrainian situation that we've got at the moment, and we've got clients who've got um, factories and teams of people, you know, in, in Ukraine and also Russia. And um, it's, it's amazing to see the effort that's been made between our clients and their key distributors, let's say, or salespeople working in those countries to get them to, you know, to safety or to keep the show on the road. And so um, I'm kind of, I'm, 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 you know, I've seen, I, I suppose I've seen both ends of the spectrum. You know, I've seen organizations who are still very target orientated and sales focused and they, they you know, they beat the sales teams up with, with not achieving targets in markets that have reduced perhaps sometimes quite drastically. But I've also seen organizations that have taken a hugely supportive role in um, sort of nurturing those particular customers that are really important to them and, and really going out of them where even with, with financial support, you know, to stop organizations going bust. So I suppose I've, I kind of, I find it difficult to generalize. Um, I must admit, I, I was interested when the pandemic first hit to, to find out how many of our clients actually had reduced sales targets in order to, um, you know, achieve their, their you know, their, their years results. And I was rather surprised that very few had adjusted them. Mm. Yep. 
we've also found that those companies that have actually either increased targets or reduced now have massive attrition problems. Um, in, in one organization, they have 30% of their sales force. You know, they've got vacancies for 30% of their sales force. They've got hundreds of salespeople. And this has been partly that the earnings potential has not been there because the targets have been so unrealistic um, uh, and so on. So, yeah, I, I don't know if I could generalize so much, Ian, but um, my sense is that what you kind of alluding to this switch is such an important um, issue, um, you know, for selling organizations to switch, switch from being supplier centric to client centric. Um, and, uh, you know, in product focused organizations, it's very difficult to, to get a shift of mindset as I, as I think we know. I, I don't know if I've added any more to the debate Ian, but I, I've uh, certainly seen, you know, different approaches. Yeah, Phil, I, I guess we've got to continue to work with our clients, probably yeah. on a case-by-case -case basis, yeah. to help them make that transition. Absolutely. I, I think it's, yes, whether whether we call it transition or transformation is a, is a really good, uh, that, that's a, a discussion as well in its own right. Yeah. So, uh, I agree. No, I think there'll be a lot of research done on things like attrition, mental um, health, um, and so on, looking at the way in which sales leaders have, 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 have managed, you know, during the pandemic um, to, you know, to keep their, you know, their sales teams sort of focused in, in, in a period of incredible, you know, challenge. So, um, so that's great. Luke, I don't know if there are any other questions that, that we might want to, to move on to. We do. Uh, before we do, thank you, Ian. Thanks for dialing in. All the yeah. way from Johannesburg. Pleasure to have you on. Yeah. <laughs> well, we, we moved from Johannesburg to just down the road, actually, to, to Twickenham. Okay. Um, with this question, <laughs> quick question from Luke Stoneman Smith from Insone. Okay. Um, and quite a, a broad question. He said, it's a bit of a hot debate for some. Uh, are people born a salesperson or, or, or are they made into a salesperson? Blimey, is, is Luke able to have joined us on the call? I don't think he's able to join us today. Uh, okay, so are people, um, well, I, I think obviously, not obviously, I, I think there's certain personality traits that, 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 that maybe lead, um, <clears throat> lead one to become a salesperson. For example, if you are, um, you know, very introverted, for example, it, you know, it might not be a profession that you choose to be in. <clears throat> and and personality, I I, pers I personally believe is is not something you can change a great deal. So I think that um, I think from that side of things, uh, personality wise, it's it's not you know it's not possible to to get huge changes in personality over time. Um, but I do believe that it's entirely possible to to actually train and and develop um, people. Um, into becoming salespeople. And I, I never forget um, in one of the very first uh, jobs I had with a consulting firm, um, I was a junior consultant there and, and the managing director of the firm, um, who was uh, you know, sort of a very inspiring leader, he promoted 
um, someone who is in a secretarial role to become a junior consultant. And I think most of the team had seen this person as being in a secretarial mm. role and, 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 and therefore, you know, not perhaps good enough to be in sales and, and as, a, as a junior consultant uh, in sales. But within one year, this person had become one of the biggest um, performers of the team through um, the um, obviously the, the training uh, that this person received and so on. And I'll always remember that, that, that um, you know, a combination of you know, management recognizing potential plus the right type of education and training um, sort of equals uh, potentially a very successful salesperson. Uh, and I think the stereotypes, you know, I think that in the old days, the stereotype of the you know, white suited uh, salesperson, um, uh, you know, I think that's gone. I think there's, you know, they, they come in all sorts of different shapes and sizes and, you know, very diverse backgrounds. And so I'm, I absolutely believe that people can, can be trained to sell. Um, you know, there's fundamental qualities you need around curiosity and interest in people you know, mm. goes a, goes a long way, um, but you 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 can you can uh, provide frameworks and methods and techniques to be able to do this, and uh, and as such, make sales a, a really rewarding career. So for Luke, uh, Luke from Twickenham, I absolutely think they they can be uh, made. I don't think you have to be born. You know, not many people are born knowing they can want to be a salesperson. Normally, people yeah. fall into it by accident. Uh, which is what happens. And then they find, actually, I'm quite good at selling um, uh, over time. I think there's, a, there's, there's certainly been a transition from people using the phrase salesman to salesperson. Yeah. And, right. and that, you know, that's largely due to the fact we're everyone's becoming better at being, um, you know, uh, well, embracing diversity. But yeah. if you think of the term salesman, you then start to think of the, the gender stereotypes of of someone who would work in sales it immediately prescribes it's going to be a man and then you think yeah. about the bad things associated with salesmen over the years so <laughs> i think the the term salesperson is a really positive trend for the yeah. industry anyone can be a person yeah and therefore it's open to everyone and and that's and that's the beauty. and you know on the program when i when i started i had a a very very narrow view of what would make a good salesperson but the, the 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 stars from 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 my program, and a lot of them were. I think they all became really good salespeople. Um, they were just so different. One of the first activities we did, we looked at the Marilyn Reed personality types, uh, yeah. and Tina, our our tutor, Tina yeah. Dickens, asked us to stand in each corner of the room. She said, "Drivers over there, over there, expressives over there, amiable," and we were all stood in different corners. Yeah, everyone at the end of the program, in my eyes, was a good salesperson. So there you go. That's if I was to answer Luke's question, <laughs> I, I think they can absolutely be made. Yeah. Um, and if you want to be made into a good salesperson, then come on one of our courses. So I've got to get a cheeky little bit of sales in there, Phil. You know, I wouldn't be yeah. doing my job if I didn't. <laughs> <laughs> we had a question. Um, uh, so let's have a look at what we've got. We had a question from Malika actually come through the chat function. Yeah. Um, Malika's talked about 
the frustrations in sales. They said, how would you deal with the frustration of working on a deal for over a year only to end up losing it? Well, that's, uh, yeah, I think we've all been in that position, Malika. So um, I think, um, how do you deal with the frustration? I'll never forget, um, uh, I'll never forget one particular deal that we'd worked on. It wasn't quite a year, but it was probably six months. And um, we were, we found out later, we, we were one of 200 suppliers that the customer gave the offer to pitch for a, a, a particular bid. Um, they wanted to reduce the 200 sales training organizations down to three. Um, and, and we felt because of our relationship with the client that we're in a really good position. We worked really hard to, um, to, to put you know, the deal together. Um, the, the customer was very supportive in everything we asked them to do. Mm. <laughs> and and um, we, um, you know, we, we pitched and, and we lost. And, uh, and I remember the shock of losing that, um, that particular opportunity. It was, it was massively important to the company, that client. And it was like you felt it was the worst thing that could have happened. Um, so if I'm going to answer this question. First of all, um, it was because of that loss that the company now Consali was created. Mm. Um, because when we did the win-loss review and we got feedback as to why we lost, it wasn't to do with our quality of our courses. It wasn't to do with the quality of the consultants involved. It was entirely to do with the capital structure of the business. They felt we weren't big enough to be able to cope with that particular opportunity. Mm. And the learning from that, so, so how do you deal with the frustration of losing is recognizing that in every loss you get, there's a huge amount of learning. And in our case, it's led to the creation of Consalia, a joint venture, a very different balance sheet now to what we had at the beginning. And it meant that we were able to recompete for that HP deal, which we won back about three years later. Um, so that, to some extent, um, you know, so I guess the message is out of frustration that there's always, of losing, there's always, always so many learnings you can get. And I personally learn more from losing something than winning it. But the other aspect to Malika's question that I think is really important is that if your pipeline is not strong enough that you are really badly affected with the loss of one deal, then you've got problems. Mm. And so what tends to happen is that salespeople, I think generally, I think we all generally kind of maybe count our chickens before they hatch. And we, we, we pin our hopes on that big deal, uh, perhaps neglecting the strength of the pipeline that we've got. Um, so those people who are able better to deal with the frustration of losing one deal knows that they've got another seven deals, you know, in the pipeline uh, that they're working on in any case. So it, it doesn't it doesn't become, you know, quite so impactful. 
Uh, but of course, it's still frustrating. No one ever wants to lose. Um, but uh, for me, it's always been, um, it's where I've learned most lessons in life, I would say. Mm. And so part of being a salesperson is accepting rejection, you know, being able to deal with failure is yeah. a very important aspect, I think, of being a great salesperson. Hmm. I don't know how you feel, Luke. <laughs> yeah, well, I related to that because uh, what I related to, you talk about the, 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 I mean, Malika's question was quite transactional. You lose a deal. What are the frustrations yeah. of that? But for me recently, um, before I went on holiday, I was having a bit of a dry patch in sales. You know, nothing okay. was... Nothing was going right. I wasn't getting any deals over the line. Um, bit of tunnel vision as we get in sales. But having come back, had the week away, chance to reflect. I've learned more about myself in that, in, from that bad two-week period than I would have had I had a really good two weeks. So, or, or let's say a mediocre two weeks. So a mediocre, let's say I got one company on board to, to do apprentices. You know, I'd be happy with that. I wouldn't learn anything from it. I'd think I'm God's gift to sales. And I'd be like, oh, I'm really good at this. I don't need to change. Yeah. But uh, by having that sort of, I had a very frustrating two weeks and having the time to reflect, I've, I've, I've come back and I've tried to think about what's working better. And I think so far this week, I've been doing things a little bit better than before. And that's it. So if you can get that little bit of growth, um, then we're on a good tra trajectory, even if the results aren't immediate. Yeah. Um, it's interesting that, um, you know, it, I remember talking to an artist who was talking about, um, about painting and, and, and she, she made a comment about for a painting to come alive, you, you need to have contrast. You know, if you paint painting the same color, you don't really have a painting. <laughs> there needs to be contrast. And I think the thing about sales is that we put ourselves in, you know, the contrasting emotions, you know, um, losing and winning. You know, those are contrasting things that we're actually going through. But it's the contrast that it, it's what we learn, it's how we appreciate um, different experiences and what we learn from them is enabling us to get more value, if you like, more appreciation of the art in which we're working it. Our art is the art of selling, you know, that's, but this, this, you can't be, you can't, you can't be happy all the time. You can't be perfect all the time. It's just not realistic. So you've got to deal with the ups and the downs and the frustrations and the, you know, the happy times. Yeah. Yeah. Variety is the spice of life. Eh? Variety is the spice of life. Yes. Indeed, yeah. We've got, okay. a we've got a question, probably might make that the, the finale, the final okay. question. Okay. Um, <laughs> and I like this, this question because we're about, to, we, we are now really face-to-face -face, uh, in our interactions. So yeah. the question is, one of the most awkward things I find in sales is face-to-face -face networking and how to break into existing groups of people. Do you have any tips or best practice for face-to-face -face networking or or breaking into existing groups because that's it apart from drinking half a bottle of whiskey or something to get, <laughs> uh, get the car um no i know i know absolutely um you know the um you know the 
you know, the feeling about networking. Um, um, any any tips? I think that you know one of one of the tips is realizing that if you feel slightly nervous about networking, everyone else is probably feeling slightly the same. Um, and so, I would go and find someone who perhaps isn't talking to anyone and go and approach them, you know, and start a conversation with them. Um, and and um, you, you know, they're probably like you going to be relieved that someone's taken the, you know, the initiative. Um, I think it's a real skill because you've, you've got a finite amount of time and perhaps you want to sort of try and network with as many people around a, a room as you can. So to what extent do you stay with one person and then perhaps draw another person into your group if you see someone else who's not uh, perhaps uh, participating? Um, but actually, I, th I think it's 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 coming back to the values that, that, that we talk about. It's being, you know, a bit tactfully audacious and uh, and uh, proactively creative in coming up with ways in which to engage people. Mm. Uh, I think it's very much a mindset thing. But, um, you know, I can understand, uh, you know, it's not an easy thing to do, um, but but going into it with the mindset of, you know, it's you know, set yourself a goal, set yourself a target for how many new people you want to go and talk to, and then choose perhaps individuals who may not have anyone else to talk to you, and then and then sort of working the room. Um, uh, but it's 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 amazing how much can happen from a chance meeting. Yeah, I'll never, never forget someone at Mott McDonald's who is a big consulting engineer who noticed that the mayor of London was standing on his own briefly at some cocktail reception, someone very important. And he was the only one that went up and introduced himself. You know, is, here I am from Mott's and uh, mm. it, you know, we're working with a lot of the, um, the rail transportation system in London. And I've, I've really wanted to you know, find the time to talk to you. And here we are. And actually uh, what happened? And I wanted to introduce you to my chairman. Mm. And so um, his, his approach was very, you know, you know, he had the courage. He said he was a bit nervous doing it, but it's, it's, it's amazing. You know, the results you can get from having that courage. Mm. Yeah. And no, I'm looking, I'm really looking forward to it myself, getting back out there. Um, I've seen a lot on LinkedIn about how people who might suffer from anxiety um, have, have found uh, lockdown quite satisfying because they've yeah. been able to lock themselves away. So yeah. it's, it was a good question and good to get your 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 feed your feedback and thoughts because there are people out there who are going to be nervous about networking now that it's I say hopefully because I love doing it. Okay. Um, it's going to become more of a thing. So, um, so maybe, maybe you can come and share with us your experiences on some future AMA session. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. No, I, I just like that, uh, you know, meeting people and talking all sorts of nonsense, <laughs> as, you, as you well know. Um, <laughs> so if anyone ever sees me at a networking event, come and talk nonsense with me. I quite like doing it. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> but um, we're, we're, we're at six. So I, I wanted to... Firstly, yeah. thank the, uh, the the guests that have come on, um, and re really good to, to see you. And thank you for 
submitting your questions in advance as well. And, and um, also just to note for Ian, if he's still on the call, uh, looking forward to knowing Ian when you're coming over to London. We'd love to see you. <laughs> okay. Good stuff. And Phil, thank you for thank you. Thank you for being available to to answer anything. Yeah. Thank you, Luke. Yeah. Cheerio then. Good bye bye. Well done. See you later, everyone. Bye bye. So what's your selling approach like? Are you selling in a way that your customers want to be sold to? From our research, only 10% of salespeople sell in a way that customers want. But what do customers want when they're being sold to? It's no secret that here at Consalia, we've embedded the sales values and mindsets that customers want to see in salespeople into everything we do, from our sales business school through to our sales transformation offering. So how do you know whether or not you've got them? We have a very simple mindset survey to see if you possess these key values. It's really straightforward to use, will only take a few minutes to complete, and you'll be sent your results straight after. You may be just a bit surprised at the results yourself. Check out the show notes at the end of this podcast episode. What you do with the results next is your choice. We're happy to dive deeper into these results to discuss what they mean, or even explore the idea of finding out if your customers see these key values in your approach.